So today we're in 2 Samuel 24. I've enjoyed uh, this time of going through 1 and 2 Samuel with you. We've had some stimulating discussion. There's some tough themes that have come up here in the books of Samuel. And this final chapter is uh, no exception. So we've got another challenging uh, topic to wrestle with here right at the end of, of 2 Samuel. This is not the end of King David's story. That spills over into 1 Kings. We're not going to go there together as a congregation next week, but I encourage you in your personal study to finish it out and kind of see how does that handoff go to uh, his son Solomon. But we're going to be moving into a, a series on love for one another next week, and so we'll be going to the New Testament looking at Romans 12. But it's been fun going through the books of, of First and Second Samuel. I'd say if there's any predominant theme that I've seen come up again and again in First Samuel, it would be the glory of God. There's many characters that we've encountered in First and Second Samuel that seem as confused as we are at times, where we need a reminder that it's not about my glory, it's about His glory. It's not about my capability, it's about His ability. It's not about me making something happen, it's about His provision. And so this story, once again, beats that drum of recognition of God's glory. You know, I had a member of our youth group who had grown up, was a young adult, and posed this question to me. I thought it was a great question. Maybe she's not the first one that's asked this. Maybe you've wondered as well, and it caused me to wrestle with it. Her question was, if God tells us it's not okay to seek our own glory, why is it okay for Him to seek His own glory? Isn't that a contradiction? You know, to say, do as I say, not as I do. If he's our example that we look to and he seeks his own glory, but then he tells us, don't you go for your own glory, isn't there a disconnect? Man, I, I wrestled with that. But I think it's a simple answer, really. It's just the, the reminder, you're not God. And that was basically what I told her. So, you know, if you're God then seek your own glory by all means because you are glorious. You are supreme. It would be wrong for God not to seek his own glory. In fact, the guys were going through this study uh, that, uh, uh, that Sean had led at the ministry center Saturday mornings that talked about that very thing. God seeking his glory is, is the, the universe being the, the way it should be. When you have the maker of heaven and earth, the supreme creator of all things, all things should point to his glory. All things must point to his greater glory. So it's right for God, the glorious triune God, to be recognized as being glorious, to be famous, to have his reputation lifted on high above all the earth, to have every knee bow before him, every tongue confess that he is Lord, to see him as he is. And so as we get to this story about Another moment in Israel's history and David's life where he needed a reminder of God's glorious presence. Why don't, we, why don't we begin with a prayer for our own hearts? That maybe if we're wrestling with that question of God's glory, God's strength versus myself, my plans, let's just lay that before him as we go to his word. Can we do that together? God, we come with a fresh desire to see you as you are, to recognize you in all your glory and splendor, to make your greater glory our highest aim. We worship you in your majesty. We ask for faith now to see you more clearly, to trust in you for our strength today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's get into this story now in 2 Samuel 24. It begins like this. 
Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. Let's pause there for a moment. So the, the theme here that is being introduced right off the bat is God's anger. Okay, that's, that's the key phrase emphasized here in 2 Samuel 24. The anger of the Lord kindled against Israel. And before we go any further, let me just ask you a little Bible trivia question. In the Old Testament, when God is angry at his people Israel, what is the normal means that he uses to discipline, correct them, draw them back, cause repentance? Anyone have an answer for that? What's the normal method that he uses to discipline his people in the Old Testament? Being conquered, exactly. He, get, he gets a foreign government involved, right? And he says, okay, Babylonians, come and drag them off into captivity. Assyrians, get the rest of them, drag them off into captivity. Philistines, come on in, you're going to be victorious for a time. Exactly right. So God often, in the Old Testament, when he's angry at his people because they've been unfaithful and they, they need a reminder of the glorious king that he is, he will use a foreign pagan nation in battle to be an adversary against them. Okay, so that's, that's going to be an important question to keep in mind. Now, um, the other thing, I'll just, I'll just lay it out there for you. This is a verse that atheists, non-Christians, skeptics will use against Christians. So a little apologetics lesson today. Apologetics is when you have an answer about your faith. You know, when you can argue with somebody from the truth of God's word. But this is one of those ones that, uh, that you'll find on the internet, you know, the, all the, the, uh, the, the, the haters out there, you know, kind of like, oh yeah, you Christians, you, your Bible's full of all these discrepancies, okay? So in this passage here in 2 Samuel 24, verse 1, it says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he incited David against them, saying, go number Israel and Judah. Now, keep a finger there because there's a parallel passage. This is where the problem exists. Flip over to 1 Chronicles 21. The books of Chronicles really recapitulate a lot of Israel's history. And so you'll hear the same story retold by the chronicler that maybe you found in, in 1 and 2 Samuel or the books of Kings. And so in this chapter, here's what it says. 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So which is it? Who prompted David to take this census that we're going to read about? Was it God or was it Satan? Now that's, a, that's the question that a lot of skeptics will pose to you. Maybe you've wrestled with this passage yourself and looked at it. I'm going to try to, to unpack this for you in, in the best way that I can uh, decipher what's happening here. A couple of different Books of the Bible, different theological goals that are being communicated in each of these. But I think this one really comes down to the meaning of the word Satan. Okay, So this is a Hebrew word. It means adversary. Sometimes it occurs with the definite article, the. Other times it doesn't have it, so it would be a. In, this, in the example in 1 Chronicles, it does not have a definite article. In Job 1 and 2, it does. So in Job 1 and 2, the adversary, the Satan, comes to God and, and starts negotiating about Job. You know, hey, God, you know, Job's been faithful to you. Yeah, but that's only because you're good to him. If you allow the blessing from his life to be withheld and you allow 
suffering, he's going to turn his back on you and curse you. And so it's a personified adversary there in Job 1 and 2. In 1 Chronicles 21, it does not have that article. And so you could interpret it as a Satan, an adversary, or the Satan, proper name, whichever way. Most of our Bible translations in English would convert that to Satan, capital S, proper name. But you will find a few of the Bible translations that say an adversary. And I would say that in light of what we know about how God, when he's angry against his people, he uses a foreign government. And and in light of how this story is going to unfold, it would not be unusual to look at that as an adversary incited David to take a census. Because what ends up happening in this story, the commander of David's army and his men go out and they number Every fighting man in Israel. There's a military theme throughout this chapter that we're going to read here in 2 Samuel. So that's one insight is to say really it, it could be that it's not the personified adversary, but it's an adversary as in a foreign government. Another insight is that in the Hebrew mind, God superintends everything good and bad. He's that sovereign that everything ultimately goes back to him whether he's the direct cause or he allows and permits things to happen. Now, in our mind, we probably don't see God's sovereignty as that big. So who needs to change? The Old Testament mind or our mind? I think, I think we should be challenged by looking at the mindset of the, of the Hebrew, uh, our, our, our colleagues in faith, the, the saints who have gone before us, to look at God's sovereignty as much higher than we have. Because logically, if there's something above God's sovereignty, isn't that actually God? If it's fate, if it's chance, if it's bad luck, really wouldn't those things then logically be above God? So really, they are correct and we are the ones that need to be corrected. And God can at times allow and use a foreign government to come in or even allow personified adversary himself, Satan, to come and do things that will ultimately accomplish God's greater glory. The real issue here in 2 Samuel is the anger of the Lord. And God has a plan. It's a progression that will follow something like this. Israel has sinned. I'm angry. There's been disobedience and so now my wrath is going to be poured out on Israel via an adversary which is going to result in your repentance and restored relationship and ultimately my greater glory. So what began with our with Israel's disobedience and God's anger will ultimately result in God's greater glory. That's the thrust of this chapter. And hopefully we can enter into that as well. You know, we suffer at times because of our own sin. Sometimes we suffer because of other people's sin. But it's, very, it's a common human trait that we suffer because of our own sin. When God allows suffering because of our sin, it's not because he's a bully. It's because the maxim is true that the road of wisdom is paved with mistakes and consequences. And if, you, if, we're, if, the, if the consequences of our sins are withheld, we, we lack 
that opportunity to, to acquire wisdom. God desires his greater glory. He wants us to know him more clearly, to follow him more purely, and he'll at times allow us to sit in the consequences of our own sin so that we can come to that place of repentance and receive mercy and draw closer to him and be restored and he can be glorified. So God allows David to, to now begin to number the people. We'll, we'll find out, like, why is that actually a problem? Like, it doesn't, on first blush, you're like, well, what's the big deal? You're going to go, like, you know, we do a census here in this country every 10 years. We'll dig into that a little bit more, but let's go on with the story. So the king now takes that message to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, and he says this, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? So Joab is opposing the king's instructions to go and take a census. He's arguing with the king. He's unwilling to do that. We're going to see as, as, he, as this story unfolds, you know, number one, this is a huge undertaking. Uh, as, we, as we start to hear some of the geographical names of the places where this census takes place, it starts way down here in the southeast and it goes all the way up and around a circuit throughout all of Israel, all the way to the southwest, all, the entire region of Israel in a big circle. It takes nine months and 20 days to conduct the census. It's a huge undertaking. Secondly, it's, it's going to be unpopular. The people are not going to be thrilled that the census is taking place. In fact, it will be onerous on the people because of a command in Exodus 30 that whenever you take a census, God had commanded way back in Israel's history, you must also collect a census tax. One half a shekel for everyone 20 years of age and up. It will be financially costly for the nation of Israel. Third, Joab says it's really unnecessary, king. It doesn't matter how many of them there are. They're all loyal to you. And even, even if there were a hundred times as many, they would be faithful, loyal servants of the king. So why do you want to do this? And yet, verse 4, the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. This is a military action. And these aren't the IRS agents going out to take a census and collect taxes. This is a military operation. And now we hear the geographical progression here. They crossed the Jordan, began from Aurora, and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad onto Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. They came to Dan. From Dan they went around to Sidon, came to the fortress of Tyre, and to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites. And they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. This is where the Bible maps in the back of your Bible come in handy. So you can see that progression from southeast to northeast to northwest and finally to southwest and back to Jerusalem. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of 
nine months and 20 days. Interesting little insight on that one. Yeah, nine months and 20 days. That Whoa is right. That's a long period of time. In fact, that's the exact period of time of the human gestational cycle. If you're going to have a baby, it takes nine moons and 20 days, 40 weeks. There's some, there's some symbolism and imagery happening here. You've got this circular round progression that takes the amount of time it takes a woman's belly to get big and round. I think there's a verse in the New Testament that will help shed some light on this. So we'll look at that in just a bit, James 1. But this is, you know, it's just dropped in there. I would say one thing that's happening here is there's plenty of time for David to rethink this decision. Nine months and 20 days for this idea, this desire that was birthed in a desire of David's heart and it's now growing and it's coming to fruition and it's about to be born in a way that will bring destruction on Israel. Plenty of time for David at any point to go, you know what, hang on. Let's stop this census right now. Wherever, wherever the commanders are, have them come back to Jerusalem. We're putting an end to this. We're going in a new path. And yet David allows this to progress throughout nine months and 20 days. To fester, to build. And then in verse 9, we get some more military language here. Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000. Notice in the results of the census, it's not how many women baking bread there were. It's not how many students studying the Torah that there were throughout all of Israel. This is a military census counting the number of fighting men that there are. I think that fits well with an understanding of God's anger resulting in an adversary, a foreign nation coming to battle, and David looking to his own military strength. How many troops do I have? How many potential warriors? This sounds like the warning back in Deuteronomy 17 in God's charter for kingship. Someday you're going to want a king, Israel. When you do, Pick a king from among your own brothers, not a foreigner. Pick a king who's not given to many wives or to silver or to horses and chariots. But pick a king who makes a copy of this book of my law and carries it with them every day. A king who will teach the people in trusting God as their source of strength. A king who will not look to chariots and horses, but will remember the name of the Lord our God as the one who brings victory. And we've got David for an entire gestational period, counting his own military strength, wanting to know how many warriors do I have, and in all that time not looking to God as the source of strength for Israel. Are we guilty of that same sin? How often do we look to our own strength and our own know-how and our own abilities and our own past experiences and bring those forward to whatever the challenge of the day is? And then when we're still not making headway, how many of you have ever said this? Well, 
All we can do now is pray. Why is that the last thing we get to? You know, after I've done everything in my strength and I've counted the assets that I've ha- I have, and I've gotten opinion, opinions from everyone else, now I'll turn to God for His strength because I'm out of options. Why don't we start there? Why don't we begin there? And say, man, I have a, an adversary right here, right now. I've got a situation that's impossible. I have a diagnosis. The math is not adding up on the personal finances. Let's begin with prayer. And what if we as God's people would do that for one another? You know, there's times that we share the pains and the hurts that we're going through with one another. What if we just right at the beginning say, well, can we pray about that right now? And then let's continue to talk. But we're, we're often quick to give our advice, our thoughts, our input. It would be a good practice for us to begin by putting faith in God to trust our battles by going to Him as the first thing we do. So after this nine-month and 20-day period, after this big military uh, mission to go and count everyone throughout the entire region, now David realizes what's really going on. And in verse 10, it says, David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. This is another slightly challenging aspect of this story because it started in verse 1 with God inciting David uh, to go and, you know, it said he incited David against them, saying, go number Israel and Judah. And so it was God that gave, it says in verse 1, that God gave David the idea of taking the census. And now in verse 10, David says, I have sinned. So the question people will ask, did God tempt David to sin? Okay, that's another challenging theological question here in this story, because it could appear that way, right? Always use Scripture to interpret Scripture. And so that's a good question to say, you know, is it possible for God to tempt someone to sin? We have a really clear answer to that in James 1. I think there might be a slide on that. Might be a slide on James 1. And so here, if not, you can find it there, James 1, verse 12. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I really think this is a a New Testament uh, answer to some of these questions we have back in 2 Samuel 24. You know, we've got reference to the birthing process, you know, the gestational period of sin that starts, it's, it's inseminated by our own desire. And then it grows gives birth to sin. 
And then sin grows up and it leads to death. That's really a picture of what happens in 2 Samuel 24. There's a desire that's in David's heart and when God brings in an adversary to discipline Israel, he's not planting a new idea in David's head. It's a desire that David's been fostering that God is allowing him to pursue. It drags out for nine months and 20 days and in, in the end, David's aware of this sin that's been birthed. And he regrets that in verse 10. And he repents. He comes to God. He confesses his sin. And then in verse 11, when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Here's the three options. Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. So there's three options of punishment and discipline that God will use on David and the nation because of this trusting in military might and strength rather than in trusting in God. And so the options really, if you look at them, and David will make this explicit, but when you consider the first option, a famine of three years, we know from Joseph's story that that's going to make you dependent on a foreign land. When there's no crops in your land, you're either going to starve to death or be beholden to some foreign nation that's prepared for the famine like Egypt back in the book of Genesis. So that's, gonna, that's going to involve falling into the hands of man. Uh, the second option, fleeing three months before your foes while they pursue you, that's likely what's already been happening when God's anger was burning against Israel, as happened many times in the Old Testament. And David's remembering, you know, I don't, I don't want to be fleeing from the Philistines again. And so, again, that's falling into the hands of men. In this, time, in this case, again, a foreign nation, a pagan foreign nation. The third option, three days of pestilence, it's shorter in duration. Let's just get it over with. I don't want something dragging out for three years or three months. Three days, that sounds like the best option. Plus, David reasons that that's not the hand of a man or an enemy nation. That's the hand of God. And so here's what he says in verse 14. Of the three options, David said to Gad, I am in great distress. It's a hard choice. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. You know, as parents, we have this awesome responsibility of disciplining our children. If we fail in that task, it's going to retard and delay their development, right? Uh, and moms and dads, this is not easy. We are not always godly in our administration of discipline to our own children. Sometimes our own anger gets mixed in there. But... <laughs> Especially if you live in Watkins. It can, be, it can be tough out there. But you know, as we come to God as moms and dads and say, God, give me the, the grace to be both a disciplinarian but also a merciful 
disciplinarian so that my kids can acquire wisdom through that process of making mistakes and facing consequences. Then God can use us as parents to be a picture of the just and merciful God that we serve. And really, our families of origin get into our picture of who God is. And we end up spending our adult lives trying to undo some of those things that we learn from our own moms and dads that don't really fit God's character. And that's why we come to his word together. But hopefully we as parents that are in the midst of doing this can be laying a good foundation that will give them at least a picture of our just and merciful God. And so David is saying that, you know, I want to submit to the discipline, to the correction of a God that I know is sovereign, he's glorious, he is just, but he's also merciful. And even though Hebrews 12 puts it this way, this is how discipline really is, right? Hebrews 12, 5, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. None of us today would say, you know, I've been living in sin. I'm really looking forward to God's discipline. And yet at the end, the discipline of the Lord brings something beautiful. It brings that restored relationship. Hopefully when you discipline your own children, you've got that part of it. Whether it's a spanking, a word of correction, standing in the corner, withholding a privilege, however you discipline your children, at the end there's a hug and a reminder, a reassurance of your love for them and your desire that they go in a new direction away from whatever that behavior was. It doesn't mean our kids look forward to that discipline any more than we do as adults. But this is part of the Christian life of submission to our glorious, loving, heavenly Father. And so David says, you know, I don't want some foreign land administering judgment and discipline upon me and the nation. I'll entrust myself to the merciful God. And he chooses that option. And so in verse 15, the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. Unclench your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arauna the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. So we have the the judgment being poured out. Again, in my human interpretation of this, I'd say that it seems pretty severe. It seems like an unfair judgment. Here I am, a mere mortal, speaking to the glorious, sovereign God and saying, God, you know, couldn't a little, a little slap on the, on the wrist you know, been sufficient here? Did 70,000 people have to die because David took a census? Anyone else like me that's tempted to to feel that way in this passage? 
Too scared to, to say that, yeah. I mean, it's a picture of the glorious, majestic God that we serve. And even David comes to him now and he's, he's still continuing to seek mercy. He's really owning this. And he's saying, God, the, the sheep are, are suffering because of the sins of the shepherd. Has that ever happened in your life? You know, whether you were a sheep or a shepherd, maybe you suffered as a sheep. There was someone that was in leadership in your life who had authority in your life in some sphere, maybe in church, maybe at home, in the workplace. And because of their sins, you suffered. Maybe you've been on the other side where because of your wrongdoing and your sins, someone who depends on you suffered. And this story rings true for us. So, at this low point of the story where there's been now judgment and punishment for a lack of trust in God's strength, and you've got David crying out, this whole story ends in Jerusalem at a threshing floor of one guy's house named Arauna the Jebusite. So that's where we are now in the story. We've kind of come to the low point. David's still hoping for the mercy of God. And in that low point when, when the, the, the discipline has been administered, the suffering has rippled out. It's not just a personal sin as we've seen earlier in David's story with his sin against Uriah and Bathsheba. Sin is never personal. There's never a sin that only affects you that you can just condone because really, you know, no one's going to suffer. Who's going to know? Sin is always reaching its ugly tentacles out to affect other people. And David once again recognizes that because of his sin of not trusting the sovereign God as his source of strength, as the one who brings victory in battle, the sheep have also suffered. And so now we're on this threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. The Jebusites, as a people group, were the Canaanites who had occupied the city of Jerusalem prior to the Israelites crossing over the Jordan River, being given the promised land, Jericho, the walls falling down. You remember all this? Okay, so they were the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Among those that God had said, drive all the Canaanites out of the land, kill them, get them out of here. This is going to be a land set apart to worship me for my people to be a light to all the nations. And so here we have a Jebusite still in Jerusalem, and he's got some turf there. He's got some land. And so, verse 18, Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded And when Aruna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, 
Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aruna, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. If you've been reading your Bible, you may hear an echo of another story here in this story that we've just read in 2 Samuel 24. This really parallels the story in Genesis 23 when a guy named Abraham was grieving the death of his wife Sarah. Abraham who had left his hometown of Ur and he was heading to the promised land of Canaan. Never got there in his lifetime. But his beloved wife Sarah dies and he's looking for a burial place. And in Canaan, in that land that God had promised and said, someday my people are going to dwell here. There was a man with a field and a cave. A man named Ephron. He was a Hittite. And he was living there in the promised land. And so in Genesis 23, Abraham says, hey, I need a place to bury my wife. And Ephron says, you can, I'll, I'll give you my cave. You can bury her there, free of charge. And Abraham says, oh no. I'll take the cave and the field, but I'm going to pay for it. And I want all the, the officials here present today to see the contract that I'm staking a claim here in this promised land and my wife's body is going to be here in the land that God has promised. So we have a very similar story here where David is offered a land by a, foreign, a foreigner, a Jebusite, living there in the promised land. And he says, right here in Jerusalem, I'm going to build an altar to God. And in fact, your threshing floor, Aruna, is going to be the exact location of the future temple that Solomon builds. And this is going to be the first sacrifice offered here to worship God. The God who's just gotten done disciplining his people. The God who's just brought judgment because of sin. I'm going to turn that discipline into praise and into worship. And I'm going to build an altar right here. And I'm going to commemorate this spot. And your people, oh God, will offer sacrifices to you as a fragrant aroma to recognize your glory and your deliverance and your justice and your discipline and your correction and submit to you right here on this turf. And you can read that part of it in the Chronicler's re-summary of this story in 1 Chronicles 22, verse 1. David says, Here shall be the house of the Lord God. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. The, the progress, the progression that God had desired in this case was, Israel has sinned. My anger burns against them. I bring judgment and discipline via a foreign adversary. They repent and turn to me. I give mercy and grace and they worship me. But in David's story, there were a couple of extra components built in. 
And there was a little, there was some wandering around in a circular motion for a gestational period. The progression in the story we just read began like this. Israel angered the Lord. God brings discipline. David says, I'll take care of this my way. Then, an acknowledgement of a lack of trust in God on David's part. Then the discipline, again. And now, a cry out for mercy. And then receiving mercy. And building an altar to the Lord so that God receives greater glory. In our lives, when we fail to trust in God's strength, we just continue down this cycle of having to acquire more wisdom. It'd be better to, at the beginning of the story, go, God, you are sovereign. You are glorious. I submit to you. I don't trust in my strength. I look to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And so whatever the challenge that you're facing today, that's, that's what I leave with you, is to say, don't go, don't go through the hard way. Don't go through the nine-month and 20-day process. Today, turn to the Lord. Today, yield to Him. Today, surrender to Him. Short, shortcut the discipline and the judgment that will continue to make you uncomfortable and affect others around you. And go directly to Him. Cry out for mercy. Receive the grace that he gives so freely. Let's stand together and make that our prayer today. God, today all that we are, we give to you. We desire your greater glory above all else. Today we trust in you as our strength. We trust in you as the God who fights our battles. Lord, we submit to your correction and discipline in our lives. We thank you for the cross, Lord Jesus. Thank you that on the cross, you took our sins and our guilt upon yourself. That we don't need to suffer for our own sins, but that you were the willing sacrifice. Lord, today we pray that for those that are enduring discipline, that they would not grow weary, that they would recognize the discipline that you allow as love from you, as being received by you, as being sons and daughters of the King. And that, Lord, in those times of discipline and correction, we would acquire the wisdom that you desire for us. We would be drawn to repentance, and that we'd be reminded of your mercy. We give you thanks now in Jesus' name.